Welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is by public service leaders for current and future public service leaders. If you would like to hear what the ministers and politicians are thinking, then there are numerous other podcasts where you can tune in to find out what their latest thoughts are. This podcast is about the inspirational people designing and leading frontline public services. This is about the people who do the real work. On the podcast, you'll hear from leaders from councils, from within the NHS and other public services, and also those involved in policy development. I particularly try and find people who have interesting stories to tell and have achieved really difficult things in challenging circumstances and who have learned lessons along the way and who are keen to share those lessons with others. Because as I think as we all know, public service leaders are not prone to shout about their achievements, but it is really important, especially now with so much pressure on public services, that those leaders do share the lessons that they have learned about what works and what indeed does not work. So I hope you enjoy it and don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And indeed, you might want to catch up on some of the previous episodes. Well, I'm very excited to say that the guest in this episode is Henry Kippen. Those of you who follow public service reform closely will know exactly who Henry is. Henry is the Managing Director of the North of Tyne Combined Authority, but previously to that, he spent time in the West Midlands Combined Authority doing a wide-ranging director role. He's actually one of the few people who has senior experience in two different combined authorities. As you can imagine, we discuss a very wide range of topics, including the purpose of combined authorities and mayors, how a combined authority shouldn't just be another layer of government doing stuff, it has a different role. We talk about scale versus community-led action, and we talk about what levelling up should really mean and who it should involve. And then Henry also has this wonderful concept of having a fox's nose, and if you want to know what that means, then you'd better listen. So let's get over to the interview. Henry, you're really welcome on the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm personally delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you. I am a, a professional admirer of yours, and I think for a number of years now you've been a really important and interesting voice in the rock and roll world of public service reform. So you're very, very welcome. Um, for people who are listening who maybe don't know exactly who you are, would you mind just saying a little bit about yourself? Sure thing, and thank you for the kind intro, and it's, it's um, news to me that it's a rock and roll world, I must say. Um, so, my name's Henry, I am currently Managing Director at an organisation called the North Tyne Combined Authority, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. Um, I'm beaming in live from central Newcastle, so I live in Northumberland after having been out of the region for 20 or so years, um, and uh, I am, like many others, coming to terms with uh, what happens after COVID, Brexit, and where our economies point in the future, and how we um, how we come to terms with that? Yeah, and you're clearly from the accent. You're from the northeast, and the you're northeast. turning home in a sense. Yeah, I, I, I d definitely. I mean, I'm not sure after 
so, so northeast. Uh, I went to university in Sheffield and then lived in London and the southeast for the years after that. So probably a posh Geordie, I would say, in, in terms of the accent. But, but you, you, um, it, the rest of the country wouldn't necessarily realise that, would they? That, well, it, it's the same with my own accent. I think sometimes people think I'm Scottish. Sometimes they get it right and say Northern Irish. So, yeah. Um, so as, as you said in your introduction there, you're the managing director of the North of Tang Combined Authority. So the North of Tyne devolution deal was signed in November 2018 with the first mayor, Jamie Driscoll, elected in May the following year. So as a quick scene setting question, could you tell the listeners just a little bit about the exact geography of the combined authority, the councils involved and, and what powers it has and what its purpose yeah. is? Yeah, sure. So so the, the in one sense, the North of Tyne is... Uh, much like any other mayoral combined authority, of which there are 10 if you count London now, albeit London slightly different to the others. Um, it, in our case, the geography covers Newcastle, North Tyneside and Northumberland, so it is effectively the River Tyne to the borders, which is the largest in geographical terms, albeit not in population terms. So, so most of the combined authorities are based around city regional geography. If you like, if you look at Greater Manchester, it's you know, Manchester and the, the, the towns orbiting Manchester. Ours is slightly different in that there's a, a city, coast and country mix, which is yeah. really quite interesting when it comes to thinking about uh, public services, the economy and the, the, the way you organise, because of course that, that, that just, that's a slightly different egg, isn't it, in terms of um, yeah. how you serve as a rural economy to, to an urban one, let's say. Um, as a combined authority, we have a, a set of powers that you would expect to see across all of the others, so uh, we have an investment fund which is essentially, we, we, we don't have many formal powers over the economy as such, but we have an investment fund which year on year uh, allows us to invest in some of the things I'm sure will come under around education skills, economic development, housing. We have housing powers. Uh, we have some powers over skills and devolved adult education is a really important part of uh, the picture of every combined authority. Skills and human capital, absolutely fundamental to, to, to where our economy goes at, at a national level as well as regionally. Um, and we have a slightly curious arrangement around transport, so that so the guts of many of the combined authorities is a transport network, an integrated transport network, which of course we have across the northeast, but it doesn't stop at the river. So the, the, the quirk of politics that creates the North of Tyne Combined Authority means that we share our transport powers with our colleagues south of the river, what's called a Joint Transport Committee. So boring though that sounds, it is um, effectively a functional way of governing a a metro and a transport system that, that stretches way beyond our own combined authority. So, so Henry, you're definitely in the right place here because it will not be boring at all to the listeners of this uh, very <laughs> niche podcast. But you mentioned the investment fund. There is that funding. Is that all government funding? That's right. So, so the um, so our investment fund is at 20 million a year which for the population size is reasonably big. They're all relative. Each combined authority has a, a, a different size of year on year. What, what, what is typically called gain share funding, so that's devolved funding that we can, that we can use that's not ring-fenced in the way typically the government grants are. Uh, the, the whole point, though, really, is to see that as the basis for large cross-regional investment. So you would see, again, in any combined authority, uh, your job has not only been to preside over the money that you get from government, but to convene to make sure that the uh, the private sector leverage and, if you like, the social and public sector leverage on that is big. So 
uh, set against the problems of this region or any other, actually, 20 million a year ain't going to scratch the surface. But what you can do with that in terms of investing in innovation, bringing people together, trying to stimulate activity in the economy that's not just about public money, that, that's the point of it, really. Uh, and each of the combined authorities has their own version of how to do that. Some are based on investing heavily in transport. Some are based more on um, kind of education skills, human capital. Some will be very heavily about innovation. And our deal is uh, written into our devolution deal, which I mean, you can you can see online. For for those boring people who like your boring podcast, Andrew, you, you can see this online. Uh, our devolution deal is quite explicitly framed in terms of inclusive growth. And yeah. it's quite notable for that reason. So, so the, the intention of the authorities and government that set this up uh, was to make sure that it was not all about heavy infrastructure. It was about things that can unlock social inclusion as well as economic growth. So that makes it quite distinct and quite interesting, I think. I, I think that is very interesting. And I do want to come to levelling up later on. But mm-hmm. that balance between physical infrastructure and social capital, if you like, as well, I think is is really important. And a lot of the competencies that you've got there around skills, uh, that investment fund, it's almost like a regional levelling up fund almost, uh, you know. I mean, you, you, I mean that, that is a, a certain one way of putting it. I think the, the story of devolution is quite a young story, if that makes sense. So, so for, for this to work, and this is probably the the, the case in terms of the nations and regions together, there needs to be more than one or two turns of the wheel. So I would see this, and, and, and I spent a bit of time in the West Midlands in the early stages of their, their phase one of devolution two as being um, the foothills really of where we need to get to. So, so any, any credible account of devolution uh, is going to need to build substantially on where we are at the moment, not just in terms of powers and money, but, but just that sense that this is the way things work because our economy is so very heavily centralised and the way our public services work typically is quite centralised too. But the, the, the big thing for early stage combined authorities is this question of where do you add value. So it's, it's pointless being set up to then replicate the functions of a local authority and nor, nor should we try to. So yeah. working out, well, where's the real value add here? Where's the innovation in the system that wouldn't happen otherwise? Where can that convening happen on a cross-regional basis? in a way that's helpful rather than you know, reinventing regional wheels, uh, that is the, the nut that we've all got to crack. And I think the evidence suggests there's you know, examples of good and bad in that, I would say. But we're, we're, all, we're all trying to try to work on that basis, that this is a long-term game and our deals are 30 years, which, yeah. which, which to some extent reflects that. So I have a question here which I'm going to bring forward, given what you've said there, but how do you see devolution in the north of time evolving? Uh, we, we have a a 30-year agreement with government, if you like. So, so that's broken in five-year chunks. So that you know, the Treasury mark our homework every five years and say, are we doing what we said we'd do in terms of job creation, uh, the leverage on our money, and, 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 and literally doing things um, in the way that we said within the devolution deal. Uh, so, pending that uh, agreement every five years, th- there is a long-term deal here in the north of time to, to play out. Um, I think everybody up here would say, you know, wherever you are on the question of um, more or less devolution of whatever the geography, we're probably in phase one of a, of a multi-phase project. So I don't know, frankly, that the, the, uh, what the kind of geographical size and scope of devolution will be in the future. That's, that's for our politicians to work out. What I think our job is at this point is to prove the concept. So, so you, you know, we have a, a mayoral combined authority that, that is, as I said, from the time to the borders, 
you could imagine that that geography could, could grow to a population size that's somewhat similar to West Yorkshire or, or, yeah. or West Midlands. But either way, there's got to be a rationale for doing it. People have got to see that it works. And so our, our, our job here in the north of Tyne, I think, is to be the first mover and show what a, a really good, small but highly innovative combined authority can do if it really puts its shoulder to it in, in the first years. That, that's really interesting. We'll, we'll watch that, that closely. I just want to talk about your own role. Now, so you started this role in January last year. The world looked really different in January last year. And what that means, essentially, is that you've spent spent pretty much all of your time within the pandemic. So I'm sure what you thought you would be doing for your first 22 months or whatever it's been hasn't played out exactly as you imagined. So what was the role meant to be and what has it become? Uh, so that, that's a that's a good question. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure I've got a great answer to that. I would say probably, though, the premise of the question. I'm not quite sure. I agree. So so that there, okay. there, are, there are many people, even around me personally, who've experienced a much more profound disruption than than I have coming up here and, and, and doing this job. So uh, obviously, a bunch of people who are at the wrong end of the COVID pandemic and, and lo- lots of consequences socially, personally, in terms of families. But if I think about my two boys who are uh, both in primary school, they uh, came up to the region. They were in. They, they joined a new school. They were out of that school within within a couple of months. Uh, then they were back in. Then they were back out. Then they were back in. So, so the you know that that pattern of we don't quite know what's coming next. We talk about things like COVID recovery, but but, but this is not a linear process. It's going to be lumpy. You can see in the numbers at the moment that, that this is not straightforward recovery. I think impacts on everything do, and it's and it's yeah. hard to imagine what the job would be without that happening around us. To some extent, though, that's reality, isn't it? And, 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 and any, any cursory reading of the evidence about how you work in complexity, how systems deliver outcomes, how you, know, you get beyond that notion, particularly in public services, that uh, you see a problem, you design a service, you deliver it, and it's fixed. I mean, that's never really been true. And certainly in this region, uh, if you look at the way that the way that can, I don't want to claim uh, any kind of great mind on the history of public services in the region, but for sure there are fantastically well-run public services here. If you look at the local authorities, the fire services, the NHS, excellent. If you look at outcomes in the region, that's a different thing because they're, 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 they're multidimensional, aren't they? And they're, they're created yeah. by a range of different things. So, so I think all of us have had pause to think about, okay, well, what's going to create a better recovery? What's going to create the outcomes that we need? And COVID is, to some extent, a bit of a shock to the system on that. You can't, you can't get your way out of COVID with good quality services or, or by us doing a great job delivering projects faster. It's more complicated than that. I think, to some extent, everybody's been thrust into that world where we've got to think in a slightly more nuanced way about the yeah. join between what we're doing rather than just our own services and organisations. Yeah. That, that, I think, is... And, and I know that, that might sound slightly away with the fairies, but, but it, it, there's always a balance in a, a new combined authority, as this is, between showing short-term results and showing quick wins and being able to visibly show, well, we, we said we'd do some stuff and we're doing some stuff, and putting the building blocks in place for what needs to be a really serious set of long-term changes in how we operate. And I think the job... That they are the two dimensions of, of, of the job and they will remain. And I think anybody in a senior role within public services has those two things on each shoulder at the moment. Yeah, I think that that's an entirely fair answer. Um, I think really what I was 
trying to get at from the perspective of somebody listening who maybe doesn't understand the day-to-day activity of a combined authority, you know, is do you do a lot of, uh, you know, day-to-day crisis management, that sort of, you know, tactical things, or are you able, even during a pandemic, to keep that longer view on behalf of everyone else, perhaps, who is more in the in the weeds of it, if you like. So that that is a good question, and I think you, the answer is in your question. So the, the the role and the value add for combined authorities through this period is is probably in the space that you describe. I mean, personally, I've been fairly involved in the architecture of emergency response and recovery through our um, uh, LRF and SCG and RCG, and it's all a very much a kind of acronym fest. But essentially, that that really intense mix of collaboration across statutory partners and public services and business. That's had to happen really acutely and profoundly, actually, in, in, across every area. But that shift from who's going to pick up the midnight PPE drop at the fire station and take it, take it to the, the, the place it needs to be distributed is, is probably not the, that's not the set of activities that are happening at the moment. There's a much more probably sit back, okay, where are we going? How, yeah. what, what, does economy, what, what does recovery in the economy really mean for us? What, what, what have we learned about how we organise public services when vulnerability starts to look and feel slightly different in the community. And, and, a, and a good role for a combined authority, I think, is to be able to help with some of that strategic narrative. Certainly our public service partners, if I look at the local authorities up here, um, they absolutely had a very acute and immediate role in doing everything from making sure that streets are COVID secured, to delivering food parcels to people, to making sure that directs of public health have the ability to, to you know, deliver a set of messages to the public. And in that sense, combined authorities are different to local authorities because the statutory duties are just so uh, that they're very different at a time of crisis. So yeah. we, we've been quite conscious to be helpful, unlock resources for recovery uh, as, as, as quickly and as sensibly as we can and, and make sure we're a positive part of the recovery architecture yeah. for the region. Yeah. When you talk about the role of mayors, that's slightly, slightly different. That You'll find across the piece, and you don't need me to tell you that, some of this played out across the media, didn't it? That, that um, elected individuals need to play a leadership role within their communities and their constituencies and to and with the people that voted for them. So um, I think you saw through the pandemic some quite different responses playing out in terms of who wanted to be more or less visible across the piece. And that's an interesting dynamic for combined authorities who are on the one hand, a creature of the local authorities that created them. So our, our membership, if you like, is, is, of, uh, local, is local authority based. But we are also hosts to directly elected mayors who have a slightly different mandate with the public. And in that sense, we, we're always playing out that tension in the way that we work. And I think everybody across the country in a similar role would say the same thing. Yeah. No, I think certainly from what I've seen, the pressure on councils across the country, the role that combined authorities have played in enabling there to be a continued eye on the longer term has has been really important. And I think you've explained that really well. You mentioned the mayor. So I suppose my question is, how are the big decisions made? Because there is a mayor. And as I understand it, there is a cabinet as well with a couple of representatives from each of the councils and from the LEP as well. Is is that right? And if I've got that right, how are, are those big decisions made? Yeah, again, good question. So, so broadly right, that there's probably a real-world distinction between how on paper do things happen and then how in the real world do outcomes get created or how decisions get made, and inevitably that's true in every system, especially democratic systems. 
the, the way that things function here is our, our ultimate governance is a cabinet which is chaired by Jamie Driscoll, who's the directly elected mayor. Um, our cabinet is made up of the leader and deputy from each of our three authorities. We have uh, uh, the chair of our LEP, which is northeast wide rather than just north of Tyne, and a voluntary sector representative who sit on the cabinet, uh, albeit they are, they are non-voting members. So, so the voting members of the cabinet are, are, the, are the mayor and uh, former cabinet members from the local authorities. Really interesting that you have a voluntary sector representative there. I think that's important. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and that was, again, explicitly written into the devolution deal. Certainly exemplifies some of what we hope to achieve around uh, the inclusiveness of our uh, growth and reform across, across the region. And that's been a really substantive role. So Robin Fry, who is based in North Tyneside, plays that role currently. And um, it's certainly been intrinsic to quite a lot of the programmes of work we've brought through around skills, employability, inclusivity, and generally across the piece. I mean, you can't talk about inclusion and then have a bunch of programmes that do it while the rest of the world gets on with what they're going to do anyway. We, yeah. we, we wanted to very much actively blend that. Across the CAs, you gather different... The cabinets and the boards will feel slightly different, and partly that depends on the size. So, so within the West Midlands, for example, you have seven leaders within the constituent authority area plus a range of non-constituents and other board members. So it's kind of horses for courses in terms of the size of the cast list and the, yeah. and, and really the the question of, well, how do then the big decisions get made? I think common to all is a sense of pragmatism, of finding the Venn diagram around the shared values. All of the combined authorities will have an investment plan of sorts that suggests here is what the evidence base tells us about where our better outcomes are going to come from. Um, and they will be producing long-term investment plans that have some alignment to, to that and to the evidence, and indeed doing that evidence review requirement of, uh, of any combined authority that, that wants to set up in the first place. Inevitably, decision-making is collaborative and pragmatic because nobody wants to spend all their time fighting, and actually there's plenty of it across uh, political party boundaries. You know, We have a mixed Labour and Conservative cabinet up here. All of the things that we've done as a combined authority have been through that cabinet enabling them to happen. So there is there is a lot that can be done in the devolution agenda that actually gets beyond party politics and, and is about both a set of shared values where they exist and a shared commitment to some of the cross-regional schemes that, that so clearly need to happen and have been underfunded over time. And I think most combined authorities would exist in that pragmatic space. It's hard to see how anything gets done otherwise because you you know, much as would happen in Parliament or, you know, in the States where you've got mixed governments, you just get gummed up with arguments otherwise. And I yeah. don't think that serves anybody's purpose, really. Yeah. So just thinking about your time in uh, North of Tyne so far, what are you most proud of over the last 22 or so months? It's not long enough to be that proud of uh, a load of things. I think we all have to be pretty humble about who's doing the things that uh, people should be proud of, uh, certainly over the last 22 months. I think there's something really basic here, which goes back to your question about work during the pandemic. So the, the team around us has been in setup mode for that whole time. We're the, the newest combined authority on the block, if you um, if you accept West Yorkshire. West Yorkshire, yeah, yeah. So so the the job over the first year was really to to set up a functional team, mm-hmm. a bunch of new people who are coming in doing new things, whether that's making sure that we have an assurance. A framework that is credible and legal and that can stand up to audit, uh, democratic services, legal, corporate, the, the bonds of an economic development team, 
a sense of well, how are you going to do innovation in a region like this? You know, yeah. all of those things have had to be set up. They've been set up through quite a high level of collaboration, I would say. So, so that I think is what distinguishes our combined authority in that we have, and certainly my bias has always been that the more collaborative you can make the work that you do, the, the better, the more capital you buy through that collaboration and the relationships. And I think that stands to reason up here in terms of being able to run quite fast in a short amount of time. So I'm proud of the work that the team has done as individuals to still be standing after the couple of years that they've had. Yeah. I, I think that we can look back on the period through COVID where we'll all look back on that and think, what happened there? What did we do? What are the lessons? And, and there, there are many, actually, there are many lessons, albeit emergency response is a very particular point in time thing, isn't it? But my sense is that as a, as a region as a whole, we've all played quite an active and constructive part in the response and recovery from COVID. And I think that is something to be proud of because, you know, when the pressure, when the pressure hits, well, you know, you know this as well as anybody, when the pressure hits in government or in business or in any sector, the mindset is almost always to go and hunker down, you know, do, do what you what you got to do, make it happen. You almost shrink back from the notion that, that you, you kind of make the problem more complex by sharing it. But actually what we've seen is a really strong level of collaboration across the region, and I think that is definitely something to be proud of. We emerge here with, after that period you described, with some really exciting things that are either on the stocks already and happening or just about to be launched. So we have a Green New Deal fund, which is the country's first in terms of the uh, the scale of what that's trying to do on decarbonisation and job creation. Yeah. We've got substantial investment turning the economic wheel, if you like. We've got really exciting investments in, in the digital economy and the skills programme that's, that's really doing the business. So I, I think that is something to be proud of through, through a COVID period. Yeah. Nonetheless, we do that to serve, don't we? We do that to serve through public services. The people you really got to be proud of are the punters that are out there um, yeah, you know, exactly. through the business and the, the, the people on the front line, and we're no different to any other region in that. But they're they're the heroes over the last two years, and we, whatever we can do to to, to enable them to live lives and get jobs and prosper, that's that's what we're here for, really. Yeah, and what about any lessons that you've learned or things that you would have done differently over the past 22 months? I mean, I don't just to put some context around this. I do not know a single person who. I wouldn't have done at least something differently over the, over the over the pandemic. So, if you had a couple of examples, I think it would be really interesting just to to get the learning from that. Yeah, I, I, well, how, how long's the podcast? I think and any anybody who considers himself to be in a senior role within any organisation that's not thinking about learning has it's got um, yeah. something to learn, quote unquote. And um, I, I think we have a we've learned a huge amount about the kind of physical digital mix and what gets things done. You know, we've been, we've been forced to reflect on our assumptions about what drives the economy, where people need to be uh, for us as an organisation, that kind of culture of get your bum on the seat and do your work and go home at six o'clock. I mean, that, that just got bust wide open very, very quickly, didn't it? Yeah. I think we have a mix, like, like every organisation probably, of in that shift from physical to digital, doing some things well and some things and not so well, you know, communication. Yeah. And, the, and the biggest bit of that, I think, is about the, the feedback loop in the organisation. So for, so for me, having, a, having a, a, a management role, the important thing is that the speed of that feedback loop, you, you move things along because you learn fast, you do it together. You, and, and I think we've got a lot to learn about having done that well in some cases and really not well in others. The speed of the feedback loop is absolutely critical and across 
any organization that if you had that, you got through the pandemic pretty well. If you didn't, you struggled and your errors and things that you got wrong, you just essentially double down on them. If you don't have that open willingness to, to hear ideas, to get feedback and to accept that things haven't worked. And for some quote unquote hero leaders, that's really difficult. Um, because they're maybe used to just having all of the answers or at least thinking that they have to project that they have all of the answers. And that leadership is so important. I, I think it, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that's right. Who knows? I, I, but I'm a big believer that you come into a role to, to explore and learn the role. You know, if you, if you, if you think you're a fully baked cake when you walk into a job, then it's probably not the one you should be yeah. jumping into. There's always a, to put it this way, I've always thought that the mindset for an organisation that evolves and changes, or a good organisation, is that it's got a bit of an itchy nose. You know, that there's, there's, it really cares about the quality of what, what's being delivered and how, but it's got a bit of a fox's nose for what comes next. Yeah. I think that, that has to be the one of the defining characteristics of devolution uh, and our organisations, in that, that we are not just put on the world to deliver more stuff, because why would you bother creating and providing authority when you've got lots of other organisations that can deliver some stuff? Part of our job is about imagining what comes next and thinking about the future and testing and trying and prototyping. And by definition, that involves cocking something yeah. up. It, it yeah. just does, doesn't it? I mean, you know that as a public service innovator, it's yeah. absolutely true in the economic space too. So, if, so, so, fifty percent of what we do probably is testing and trying and learning. And, and if we've done it before and we knew it worked, then it probably is happening already. So, by definition, we need to be in that space for a lot of what we do. I think that's right. So, Henry, I want to ask you about your West Midlands role now. So before your current role, you had a very wide ranging director role at the West Midlands Combined Authority, working with Mayor Andy Street, obviously. Can you tell us a bit about that role and how you found the experience? Yeah, I certainly can. I mean, a a reasonably wide ranging role covering public services, elements of inclusive growth, uh, the digital programme and the beginnings of a a climate change and green growth programme for the Combined Authority. That role was fascinating. I learned a whole lot about the region I didn't know much about and really enjoyed it. It's a real thrilling place to work, actually, the West Midlands. And the, yeah. the, the heft of the place is something you can really feel. The diversity of the place, it's really, it's going somewhere, isn't it? And, 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 I, and I think as a, as a region through that period, setting up again a new combined authority, new mayor, a really exciting time to be doing that. My role was probably the glue that bound some of the bits of the organisation together, I would say. To be, again, humble enough about it, um, I I know enough, a small amount of enough trades to be able to glue a bit of it together, and I think that's probably my characterisation of what I did within that period. Yeah. I know it's it's certainly a very exciting and interesting place, the West Midlands. Um, I want to ask you a question about scale. So one of my previous interviewees, Chris Naylor, was the interim chief exec in Birmingham. And a point he made really strongly was that he was very excited by the ability that council had to make decisions that would impact over a million people. Whereas in his home borough of Barking and Dagenham, it's it's a lot smaller. So there just wasn't that immediate impact. So the West Midlands covers over 4 million people. Well, the north of time, whilst it's a bigger, it's a big geographical area, it covers just under a million. So what's your comment on scale and 
how you can have an impact in terms of scale. Is it is it easier and quicker to get things done with a lower population, or is that is that balanced off in terms of having a bigger impact with a bigger population? So, so the, the policy wonk economic geographer bit of your brain at this, not that I have that bit of my brain really, but that, that, that it would tell you <laughs> functional economic areas, it's about functional economic areas and that's what yeah. defines and shapes the, 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 the scale. Your question though is about ways of working and how, and, yeah. and, and influencing and I think there is inevitably a trade-off that for sure are working at a bigger scale, wider scale, more people can allow you off the bat to uh, reach more people, to to have an economic impact that is wider, but sometimes there's a trade-off with agility and your ability to test and try new things. And I would say scale is absolutely vital for doing work in, say, the transport infrastructure space. When you are thinking about innovations in early years or other elements of public service reform or uh, localised skills and inclusion, then scale becomes part of the problem and it goes back to the, the you know, all of the, the, the evaluation of things like the work programme done in the past would show you that actually unless you have a degree of uh, bottom-up co-productive nature in your programmes, then scale becomes a yeah. problem to be solved rather than part of the benefit. So I, yeah. think it, I think you need a bit of both and, and, and the notion that you need to aggregate more and more and get to a bigger scale. I think probably isn't right as a starting point. I think it needs to be a bit of a, a, bit of a balance. Maybe my question wasn't exactly the right one. Maybe asking about population in terms of administrative agility, maybe that isn't as important as number of councils involved. Is that fair? Again, I think the, to go back to the point about relationships, the, the, the way that complex combined authorities and lots of councils have to work is through developing a set of relationships that can make them work. Because if, if you make decisions through voting and you're waiting to see who puts the hammer down first at the board every time you want to do something, you're never going to get anything done. So the, the, the extent to which you can build strong relationship capital across a region or a set of services or local authorities is the defining feature of how well decisions get made, from my point yeah. of view. Yeah. So um, I want to move us along to talk about levelling up. Everyone's talking about levelling up. So in your view, what should this mean? And you've given a flavour of this earlier on when you talked about the importance of having a balance between the physical infrastructure regeneration elements and the social human capital elements. Now we've just, as we're talking here last week, we just had the results of round one of levelling up, uh, of the levelling up bids and Newcastle where you're sat had a couple of successful bids and interestingly one uh, was for the regeneration of Granger Market and Old Eldon Square, which is very much a regen project. But then there was also a sport and well-being hub in West Denton, which feels much more of a social capital project. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on levelling up and what it should focus on and whether you just happened to strike the, the perfect balance between the physical <laughs> and the social there. Well, well, I, sh- I should say the... Uh the bids that were approved were approved by government. So in terms of who, who, who's striking the right balance, there's obviously a mix of what local areas have submitted and put forward and what combination of ministers and civil servants. But do some areas have, have only put forward physical infrastructure. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, true. No, that's true. And I think there's a, there's a strong belief up here, certainly, that uh, levelling up represents something quite profound. So if you've got if you've got a... You could characterise a spectrum of opinion on levelling up. On the one hand, it's a really big change in the political economy of the country. On the other hand, it's something quite political and quite short term. And I'm, I, you know, I understand there's a variety of viewpoints. 
probably the reality is somewhere in the middle, isn't it, as it always is. But yeah. um, it, it needs to be physical, digital, social, and uh, it needs to be about policy as well, by which I mean levelling up is not just about doing more things in the regions. It's about where the, the policies and the ideas and the delivery about the future of the regions comes from. So it's one thing to put a load of people from a government department in a town in a different part of the region. That's fine and good, and good don't get me wrong, that's all good, but what true levelling up is, is generating, if you like, generating a centre of excellence, ideas, throughput of people that shifts the logic of how decisions are getting made. So, so true levelling up has a mixture of all of those things. It's not just about money, it's about how decisions get made over time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's important and it'll be interesting to see what the levelling up white paper has in it, particularly with the influence of people like Andy Haldane, who has consistently talked about the importance of social capital and not just the physical. For, for, for sure. I mean, you, you can't avoid what, whatever the political language of the day, you can't avoid levelling up being uh, in quite a profound way about how you address a set of inequalities that in many yeah. ways have been stuck and that the kind of relationship between health and the economy, if you look at the numbers up here, uh, it is absolutely two sides of the same coin. You know, the public health issues, the economic issues, they're completely intertwined. Yeah. And of course, a, a healthy economy is a productive one and vice versa. So, so that, if levelling up doesn't address that head on, then I don't think it is answering the question it's set for itself. Yeah, no, I think that, that that's exactly right. So another dimension of levelling up is the level that levelling up is driven from. There's been a lot of talk about the fact that effective levelling up needs to be driven by communities and power should be devolved as close to communities as possible. So what are your views on that? I think there is a lot of truth in that. I think there is a need for, well, it's been a consistent need for a long time for people to feel like they have more than a lip service stake in the things that are done around them and to them and, and, and hopefully with them. Uh, I think the agenda that, well, let me put it, let me put it this way. I, I think that needs to be done and worked through in a, in a thoughtful way. There is a difference between how do we support, empower, build an infrastructure around communities to uh, take ownership of assets or form new ways of delivering services? Or, uh, there's a difference between that kind of thing, which I think is absolutely right and involves a, a co-production between communities and the state and the private sector and civil society. And, well, we'll let them get on with it. And, 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 and there's a fuzzy line between the two. The, the latter gives you a highly unequal system exacerbated because the things that make it more equal pull out. So I think in, 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 any, in any version of community-led development and growth, you need that to be community-led, not just community, in, uh, community on its own without anybody else. So, so that doesn't sound very profound, I, I, I understand, but um, I think there is a, core, there's a key role for local government, for the state, there's a key role for business and civil society. Um, this absolutely shouldn't be about letting communities get on with it and you know, divesting collective responsibility and pushing the risk down the chain, because that is what will happen otherwise. That was part of the problem with the idea of the big society, that it, 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 it ended up coming along at the same time as austerity and was seen as a way of government saying, right, actually, we're not doing anything anymore. We're just going to let, let people get on with it. So I think your point there is, is exactly right. Um, I want to just ask about the NHS now, because when you and I spoke uh, in the lead up to this conversation, we talked about the fact that it is easier for government to allocate different amounts of funding to different areas for 
infrastructure projects, whether that's the physical or social. But inequalities in health are a huge issue in terms of levelling up. And the ability of the NHS to put more resources into geographical areas where it's most needed is not very, it's not easy to do because of the NHS constitution that it demands that everybody has equal access. So what do you think about that? You know, it's a really difficult question. Yeah, I mean, without without being able to wave a magic wand and shift the way that the service operates, I suppose you've got a version of that happening at the moment, and we have to wait and see how the reforms pan out and how actors within the system interpret those, which is just as important as the legislation itself, isn't it? For me, the magic is in how the NHS collaborates outside of its own borders. So if you look at the the things that will support a levelling up agenda, of course, fantastic health services in the different uh, tiers and settings are key. Reducing variation is key. That's all meat and drink to the NHS, isn't it? Um, if you look at areas like prevention or the relationship between health and housing and uh, the economy or uh, how poverty impacts on the system, they are all functions of, or they're all, if you like, outcomes that can only be changed by collaboration between the NHS and the organisations and systems and communities around us. Yeah. We, we happen to have fantastic hospitals with great leadership up here. And if you look at some of what they are doing, both in terms of the expansion of a CSR agenda or thinking about in a city like Newcastle, what's the collaborative infrastructure you need to put in place to do that? Um, they're very forward thinking. Uh, I think there's much more that the NHS as a whole can, can do. And if we consider recovery to be getting back to where we were, then I think you might you might have a lot of trust in the black, but you certainly won't solve the problem of lingering long-term inequality that you set out. So the, so the extent to which the NHS can collaborate well, and vice versa, of course, is, is I think, the, the biggest single determinant of whether we get there on health inequalities. So I think it's really encouraging to hear you say that you've got some really good leadership in, in hospitals and the approach that they're taking. One of the previous interviewees was Mel Pickup, who's chief exec of Bradford Teaching Hospitals. And the thing which really struck me about that conversation was, as an acute chief exec, Mel hardly spoke of the hospital as a single entity at all. It was about the fact that their ambition was to get people healthy at home, active in the community, the economy. And, and I think that these current reforms have been going on now for five odd years. And I, I do think that there is something quite profound happening in terms of culture and attitude. And it sounds like you're experiencing something something similar in North of time. Well, I think the direction of travel is the right one. I, I often, you know, you, you know, I, I spent many years working with Lord Adebowale, who's chairing the NHS Confederation now, and, and, and he talks about, in the, in the same vein, I think, about needing to see the NHS as a system rather than a set of services. And again, that, that emphasises the same thing, doesn't it? That, that, that the magic here is in understanding how you impact in and with and of a system rather than uh, within the four walls. And, and it, it, is, it is fair to say, it sounds like you had a great conversation about that. Certainly up here in Jim Mackey, Jackie Daniel, we've got really forward-thinking chief executives of our hospitals who, who absolutely get that within the systems that they're, that they're working within. We've got, to, we've got to play that through and make sure that place is at the heart of the agenda when, when, when the reforms play themselves through. Yeah, great. So as a final question, Henry, what bit of advice would you give to somebody working in the public sector or in a charity or a social enterprise who wants to make the sort of impact that you're hoping to make? 
or have made. Sorry, I, I kind of I rephrased that because I know that you'd be really modest in answering it. But, you know, you, you have made and I'll make this statement for you. A very profound contribution, I think, to public service reform in a number of areas now. So what sort of advice would you give to somebody who wants the same sort of career or a similar sort of career? Kind of you to say that. Uh, my advice would be don't lose your fox's nose. If you look at areas, places, communities, leadership cadres where things change, then um, it, is a, it is a mixture of great people doing a great job running the organisations they're in, but just as importantly, really thinking and scratching the surface on what comes next. How could we do better? How could we change? What would happen if dot, dot, dot? And, and the future of public services, you need people smarter than me to define what that's going to look like in organisational terms, but, but, but I think innovation in its purest sense is about turning that kind of itchy nose into, into a thing. You know, so if you think that can be done, then who can you get around the table and build a relationship with yeah. to make the next thing happen? And I think that's really critical. And that's where the that's where leadership comes from, in, in, in my view, because otherwise you are you are managing status quo. And you might manage that brilliantly well, but, but that doesn't answer the question of where your organisation or your place is going to go next. Yeah. And, 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 and building that critical mass of people who uh, who have that kind of itchy version of what leadership is, I think, is really important. You can see in places like Birmingham and London, for example, where you get a, a really throughput of new people and diverse views. Yeah. Like so don't lose your fox's nose would be my advice. Very good. So staying curious, never letting yourself get too comfortable with the status quo. Henry, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, needless to say, I really enjoyed that discussion and I hope you did too. There's a few specific areas that I want to dig into in a bit more detail. The first is the role of combined authorities. I thought Henry's points around a combined authority not just being another layer of government doing stuff and possibly even competing with central government and local government trying to grab more things that it can add to its portfolio of services. That role of the combined authority being the body that's able to continually consider the big picture and to think strategically. And as Henry puts it, to have that fox's nose to constantly sniff out what's next, what's around the corner, what are the big systemic changes happening, what pressures is the overall system under. I think that's so important that a combined authority doesn't try to land grab off councils or central government. It has a very unique, important and special role. I think Henry's views on scale were very important, how it is appropriate for some things to be done at scale, but actually scale interrupts and disrupts the ability to do things in a bottom-up way. And I think Henry's main point there was that as you grow as an organization in terms of the area you cover, the population you cover, you do lose a bit of that ability to do things at a local level and to empower at a local level. And finally, I enjoyed the part of the discussion where Henry talked about what something being community-led really means. It shouldn't mean devolving responsibility and accountability completely away from government. This was part of the problem with big society, where uh, when David Cameron tried to introduce it, it came alongside austerity. And it felt very much, probably quite fairly, to people like government was 
totally divesting itself of any accountability, responsibility for delivering certain things. And the point Henry makes is that for something to be community led, it should not mean that you just give it over and let everybody get on with it. There needs to be support mechanisms around it and it needs to be a proper partnership between public services, communities, individuals and local businesses as well. And it's not just about one particular part of the system having full responsibility, but it needs to be, where possible, led by community views. So that's all we have time for. I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to register on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you never miss a future episode. 